Good morning. morning. My name is Mario. I'm uh, one of the pastors here. And this is the first day of the year. And the first day of the year, as you know, often, well, actually, the first day of anything um, often sets the tone for that something, right? And so for that reason, we are beginning um, our series Open House this morning. Open House is a phrase that I have heard mostly from realtors and school people. Um, Realtors sometimes have an open house and school administration sometimes invite you to the open house at their school. And in both cases, it's the same thing. It's come here and then we will show you around, right? We will let you see what you cannot see from the outside. And from the case of a realtor, it's usually like just literally like they will open the house and you can go and see the inside of the house rather than just seeing the outside of the house. Um, But for for the case of a school, it's usually more than just that. When the school has an open house, I think it's more than just we're going to show you what the inside of the building looks like. A school open house often is not just there's the water fountain and the English classes around the corner. Uh, oftentimes, it, what's involved in a school open house is they gather you together so they can tell you like, some of the values of the school and the goals for the year and the, like, the practices maybe that are unique to that school or the policies that they think it's important for everybody to know at the beginning. So for the month of January, I wanted to do that as a church. Um, and so that's why we're talking about what we're talking about this month. And I decided, um, kind of at the last minute, a few days ago, I decided that I wanted to go ahead and start off this sermon series with a pretty big confession. Um, something that, when I say confession, I mean this is something that I think a lot of pastors know, but it is not often talked about at the congregational level. Okay, So for those of you who are, who are pastors or former pastors, this is something that like, we think about and we know about, but like, we, don't ever tell, we don't ever tell you regular people about this. We just be quiet, but we know, and we don't tell you. <laughs> Um, And so I'm going to go ahead and just pull back the curtain and let you know, let you know what it is, let you know a little bit more of what it looks like on the inside for how churches work. So here's the confession I want to start with. I believe that there are many occasions when churches drift away from their original mission and adopt a new mission, often an unspoken mission. And the new mission is usually something that nobody would have agreed to at the beginning when they first started it. Did you know that? Yeah. I believe that there have been many churches that have started off with good intentions. Sometimes the intentions would be um, worship, that there'll be a group of people and they go, let's get together for worship. I want to honor Jesus with my life and you want to honor Jesus with your life and she wants to honor Jesus with her life. Let's all get together and not worship God in isolation, but together. Sometimes it's about teaching. There's a group of people and they go, whoa, this teacher, there's this thing in the Bible and everybody needs to know this, right? Every non-Christian or every Christian needs to know this thing. And so we need to get some more people to come. They need to come gather and hear this truth, hear this teaching. Sometimes it's community, that there is a group of people and they are committed to one another and they're a church. They're like, well, I'm here for you and you're here for me and I got your back and you got mine and we band together and we're a church. Sometimes it's evangelism. There's one person or maybe more than one person that gets together with another group of people and they go, let's reach this city for Jesus. Like we want to tell people about Jesus. So let's meet on whatever this certain, however often we meet and strategize how we can reach the people of this county with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Most churches, I mean, churches usually begin for one or more of those reasons. And then sometimes what happens over time is they formalize they systematize, they institutionalize. And if they're not careful, their focus becomes less and less about worship and community and evangelism, and it becomes about perpetuating the institution that has been built. It becomes about maintaining the systems 
and keeping the contraption going. That becomes the new mission without anybody realizing it. Have you seen this? It's real. I mean, to phrase it another way, because you might go, that sounds awful. How's that even happen? Listen, this is the way I was thinking about it. I think it's pretty common. Christians will, over time, create tools that help them to do the Lord's work better. And that is a good thing. Christians will get together and they will start serving God in a particular way. And then somebody will go, well, if we buy some of that and we incorporate some of that, we could do this even better. We could reach even more people. If someone did a schedule and we had shifts and these people came on this day and these people came on this day, we could do even more of what we're doing. If we organize this and set up a thing, this could be even better than it was. Christians will, over time, create tools that help them do the Lord's work better, which is totally good. But then later on, Sometimes they will get distracted by the maintenance of the tools that they've created. So much so that they forget to do the job they created the tools for. So you've seen this. I can hear you going, yep, yep. You're, th- you're probably thinking of specific things that have happened in your life. I am. I've seen it over and over again. And the way that it happens, I think, is pretty interesting because I think it's actually very natural for this to happen. I don't think any supervillain has to come in and like corrupt anything. I think it's just what will happen if you don't watch out. So here's how I think it happens. I'll just tell you a story of, let's just imagine a church beginning, okay? This is like a story of a church beginning and growing. I think this is kind of representative of what happens a lot of times. So once upon a time, let's make our story. There were 10 Christians and they were all meeting in a living room, okay? In fact, there are a lot of churches that that's how they start, okay? 10 Christians meeting in a living room. And there the 10 Christians are, and they're meeting in that living room on a regular basis for some sort of Jesus purpose, right? Maybe they're praying together every week. Maybe they're studying the Bible together every week. Maybe they're strategizing how to reach people with the gospel. But they're doing something every single week together. And so technically at this point, I think biblically speaking, they're already a church. Like there are 10 people meeting on a regular basis, and they're Christians, and they're meeting for a Jesus purpose. They're probably already a church, but, but they probably don't call themselves that yet. But what happens over time is the 10 Christians in the living room don't remain 10 Christians in the living room. If, if what they're doing with one another is spiritually healthy for them, it often doesn't stay 10 Christians in the living room. It becomes 12 Christians in the living room and then 18 Christians in the living room and then 22, right? Because somebody says, my nephew really needs to be a part of this. And someone says, oh, my aunt, we, she really wants us to pray for her. She, could, she, could she come here and we all pray for her? Yeah, yeah, bring your aunt next time. And someone else says, I got a next door neighbor. He needs to hear the stuff that you're saying. Can I bring him so he can hear the stuff that's being taught here? And one day somebody gets up and goes, you know, uh, we can't fit the 30 of us in the living room anymore. What do we do? And somebody goes, wow, so-and-so's got extra space in the back of his warehouse. Why don't we meet there? Everyone goes, that's a great idea. There's more space there. But where are we going to sit? We're not all going to drag our couches to the warehouse. And then somebody goes, well, I'll buy like 50 chairs, right? And everyone goes, oh, thanks, Todd. All right, and they buy 50 chairs, and then boom, there they are in the warehouse. And it's better than it was before because there's more people that are able to minister to one another and do whatever it is they were doing. And then as time goes on, somebody says, you know what would be even better? It'd be cool if we could have, um, like, a, a, the, if the guy who's talking <clears throat> could have a microphone and some speakers, and we didn't have to strain to hear him. Man, that would be good, right? Because we don't have a nursery. We're just holding the baby, and the baby's screaming, and it sure would be nice if I could hear him. Just crank that thing up. That'd be nice. And so somebody goes, well, I'll do that. And so they spend some money, right? And they buy a microphone. They buy some speakers. Maybe they buy some more chairs at this point. At some point, maybe what happens is somebody goes, you know, I feel like this teaching, though it's very good, would be even better if the person who was devoting themselves to the task was able to devote themselves to the task more. Like they have a, a, a job, and if they weren't doing it on the side, I think the teaching would be even better. And so maybe the guy comes up with this, or maybe the, the, somebody comes to him. I don't know whose idea it is, but somebody goes, hey, 
Mr. You know, best teaching gifting out of the rest of us, you're an accountant. You work 40 hours a week as an accountant, and you're doing a great job, but like, is there any way you could just work like 20 hours a week as an accountant and then put 20 hours a week into like, just really studying the Bible and trying to teach us the Bible as good as you could? And the guy goes, well, I couldn't afford, I got a family to feed. I wouldn't even be able to, I'd be kicked out of my house if they did that. Well, no, 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 we'll all pitch in and we'll pay you for the 20 hours so that you can only do 20 hours of counting and you can focus on that. And he goes, well, that would be great. And then imagine he does it and the quality of the teaching goes up because he's focusing on studying the Bible and teaching the people and it gets even better. And these kinds of things keep happening until you end up with a church like this, Right? You end up with some church building where there's this large group of people and they own their own building and they've got like, a, I don't even know, I didn't count them, a zillion lights, right? And there's an electrical bill counted to that light, so people got to give money because they keep the lights on because, it's, it's, I mean, you could meet in here in the dark, but we never have because that's not fun. And, and there's, there's a, you know, we got to pay a water bill because there's, I mean, it's just, you get to the point where it's a more complex system than it used to be, right? And now you have a system that is, I would say in a lot of ways, it's costlier, but better, right? It's costlier in the fact that there, now there's stuff that we didn't ever have to worry about and things we're buying and stuff that we're spending. But in some ways, it's better we're able to reach more people and make a different, bigger difference than we were before. And so these things, even little things that you don't think about it, are incredibly convenient and effective, and, but, but they cost money. Th things like air conditioning. Oh, fantastic. Like, you could do church for a lot cheaper without, like, heat in the winter and AC in the summer, but, like, it'd be real hard to like, get people to show up for that or, like, without bathrooms. Did you know that, like, you don't have to have a bathroom to have church? Right? You can just do a church with no bathroom. I mean, not in America. There's like building codes, whatever. But, but like, but you have to, like, you, you could do church without a bathroom, right? Like, in fact, for most of history, they did, right? We just take it for granted. We live in a country where there's always a bathroom around the hall. And so we just think, we, like, we don't notice like how fantastic that is. But I just want to remind you, most people throughout history didn't even have that, right? But here we are right around the corner. You got a problem. You can take care of it in private. Okay. And, but here's the thing that costs money, right? It costs money to build the bathroom. It costs money to clean the bathroom. It costs money to maintain the bathroom. I think it costs money every flush, right? I mean, we don't charge you a nickel a flush, but I think it is. And here's the thing. No one thinks that's a bad idea. I've never heard anyone that's like, oh, good news church, wasting all their money having toilets over there. Like no, everyone goes, no, that's good. It's good that some, you know, I pitch in my money or somebody pitches in their money and like makes that happen. That's fantastic that's that there. You're right. But what ends up is you end up with this kind of system where you have this campus and these buildings and you've got bathrooms and you've got air conditioning and you've got amplification and you've got like a website and somebody, you know, has to maintain that and design that and you've got, it's, you know, it's a helpful tool because it tells people when the service times are and you can announce information that way and people can miss a sermon and then go onto the website and catch the sermon from the week before and you end up with these programs that are administrated by people and the people focus their time on making the program very good and so you end up with things like KidZone and music and community groups and Sunday services and so you end up with a version of church that is far more effective at reaching more people but it has now become a system that costs money to maintain. Now, so far, that's not a problem. Okay? I, I don't think that's a problem at all. In fact, I think it's a good thing. I think that God expects his people to systematize things and make them better for accomplishing his mission, and even for people to use their money to accomplish his mission. But once you've created a system that costs money to maintain, a new pressure arises that wasn't there before.
This is the confession part. This is the part that like literally I almost don't know any pastors that say this out loud, but this is the thing you need to know. At some point, the people in leadership realize something. And the something that they realize, they realize it either um, subconsciously or they realize it consciously. But at some point, it dawns on the leadership that doing the mission of the church doesn't pay the bills. So the mission of our church, and hopefully you already know it because it's on the walls when you walked in, but it's love God, love each other, love people who don't know God yet. In fact, I think the full version is we exist to glorify God by loving God, loving each other, and loving people who don't know God yet. And when you love God, and when we encourage you to love God, that is wonderful. That's our, that's our purpose here. And yet, you loving God does not pay the electric bill. And you loving others does not pay the water bill. And you love, caring for people who don't know God yet doesn't pay the salaries of people here or keep the programs going. Doing the mission doesn't pay the bills. Oh, well, then what does pay the bills? Attracting and keeping donors is what pays the bills. That's the secret, okay? Attracting and keeping donors is the thing that keeps the tools working. That's the thing that keeps the contraption going. And so without realizing it, churches, if they are not careful, can begin focusing on doing whatever it takes to maintain the system even if the system is no longer accomplishing the mission that it was made for. And I've seen that happen over and over again. And so you sometimes end up with a situation where you're trying to make a decision and you've now pitted two things against each other. You've got love God, love each other, love people who don't know God yet. And then you've got keep and attract donors. Which one do we pick, right? Now, hopefully it's obvious. Well, we should love God, love each other, and love people who don't know God yet, no matter the cost. But sometimes it doesn't seem so easy. Sometimes in the moment, it's, it, it doesn't seem like a right and wrong, mission, not mission sort of thing. Sometimes you're in a situation where you go, well, we got, in order to do this good thing, we got to keep the contraption going, which we need, we need to make these decisions right here, even if sometimes they're not helping us do what our mission is. Like, here's an example. You might be in a situation where you go, what would be good for the people of the congregation would be to teach maybe some of the difficult portions of the Bible. Maybe we need to teach portions of the Bible that are like offensive to the broader culture. And somebody says, yeah, I think that would actually help people love God more if they understood what he's revealed more. I think it would help people to be able to love each other and love people who don't know God yet if we know what God's revealed. And then somebody goes, yeah, but if you say that out loud, like it's going to be hard to attract and keep donors. So maybe we should just like leave that to the side. Can you see how that happens? Or maybe it's a more narrow thing than that. Maybe sometimes you're in a situation where it's like, okay, there's a guy that goes to the church. His name is Mr. Smith. And Mr. Smith has preferences, okay? And uh, maybe he's rich too. Let's make him rich and have preferences. And, and so he's got things that he wants. You know, you need to start doing this, or you need to stop doing this, or we need a program that does blah, 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 or I want to get rid of the policy that says we can't do da, da, da. And then someone comes along and says, well, what should we do? And they go, well... I mean, what Mr. Smith wants us to do is actually not going to help us love God, love each other, or love people who don't know God yet any better. It's actually make it more difficult. But then someone says, yeah, but Mr. Smith's a big donor. And he said that if we don't do it, like he's going to leave and go to the Methodist church that will do it. And then how will we do our stuff when he leaves and he's not funding the stuff that we do to do the stuff we're supposed to do, right? And so then there's like a little freak out. Well, what are we going to do? We don't want Mr. Smith to become a Methodist. Like, oh, wouldn't that be terrible? <laughs> so we got to do it, Right? And then what have we done? We've just forgotten. Wait, why did we start this whole thing? 
to love God, love each other, and love people who don't know God yet. And sometimes the decision can be made to do what keeps the contraption alive and what attracts and keeps donors rather than doing what you started the whole thing for, which is love God, love each other, and love people who don't know God yet. And so this series, Open House, is designed to prevent that. I want to draw our attention back to the reasons we started this thing. And so every year or two, I bring this topic up, whether you like it or not. Some of you attended here for 10 years and you're like, oh, I've heard this. <laughs> I don't care. In fact, I'm doing my job. I keep telling you this. I believe somebody has to remind us, somebody has to warn us that there is a way to drift off course and it's actually not very difficult and we have to make sure that never happens. And so here we are at the beginning of a new year. And my goal is to explain and to remind us that we exist to glorify God by loving God, loving each other, and loving people who don't know God yet. And any tool that we create is only good if it helps us do that better. So all of that was an important and extended introduction. Now let's go to the Bible. Matthew chapter 22. If you have your Bible with you, go to Matthew chapter 22. I'm going to start reading in verse 35. It says this. And one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him. So the them here is the Pharisees, like in context. The Pharisees are some of the re religious leaders of Jesus' time period. And so one of these religious leaders, one of these Pharisees, who was an expert in the law, he really knew the Old Testament well, he asked a question to test him, that him is Jesus. And here's the question he asked. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? So this religious person goes up to Jesus and, and, and says, of all of the commands in the Old Testament, what's like the one that's most important? If you had to rank, I mean, there's a lot of rules in the Old Testament. If you had to rank all the rules, what's the one that would be at the tippy top of the list? And Jesus responds with this, verse 37. He said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. So when he says, what's the one that's at the tippy top of the list? Jesus says, love God. That's the most important thing. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's the most important. That's the tippy top commandment. And Jesus did not just make that up on the fly. Remember, the question was, which one, of the, which one of the commands in the law is the most important? So he doesn't just make up an answer. He quotes from the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. That's from Deuteronomy. So they're saying in, in, the, in the Old Testament, what's the rule? What's the, what's the thing that's most important? So Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy and says, that's the one that's tippy top of the list. Love God. That's the most important thing you can do. And then he gives them some bonus information that they did not ask for, which is the second most important command. The guy didn't say what are the two most important commands, but Jesus just gave them a freebie, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. That answers the question. And then here's the bonus material. The second, which you did not ask about, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And again, Jesus did not make that up on the fly. That's a quote from Leviticus, right? He's quoting from the Old Testament. He's saying, if you're going to make a list from top to bottom, the second one would be love your neighbor as yourself from Leviticus. That would be the one. That'd be number two. And then, he, it's interesting, he says, and all the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. 
all of the things in the Old Testament, all the things that the prophets said, all the things that were recorded in the law, all the things that God has communicated that he requires of his people, all fall under these two categories. There's like, love God, love your neighbor as yourself, and every other requirement, every other command is sort of a sub-command of these two. And so Jesus made it clear, loving God is the most important thing you can do, and loving your neighbor is the second most important thing you can do. And that's why our mission statement at our church is written the way it is. So we exist to love God, love each other, and love people who don't know God yet. The reason that we started with love God as the most important thing we exist for, the reason we put it at the top of our list, is because Jesus said that's what goes at the top of the list. And then the next two are actually sub-commands or a way of kind of breaking the second command into two. Love your neighbor as yourself is what Jesus said. And so we have taken this command, love your neighbor as yourself, and broken it into two smaller commands, two sub-commands, which there's nothing wrong with that. The Bible does that all the time. Two subcommands under love your neighbor as yourself, where we specify that means your Christian neighbor and your non-Christian neighbor. So the love each other part of our mission statement is that we, those of us who are Christians, are supposed to love each other and treat each other as brothers and sisters because God is our Father. And you are also still supposed to love your non-Christian neighbor, right? Love your neighbor as yourself also refers to people who don't know Jesus yet. And so we want to make sure we share the gospel with people who don't know Jesus yet so that they could come into the family and become part of the each other and the brothers and sisters and have God as their father. And so that's our purpose statement. And that's going to be our outline for this morning. Like if I had an outline for this sermon, which I do, and if it had three points, which it does, they would be love God, love each other, love people who don't know God yet. So I'm just going to go through those three things very quickly now. All right, and just explain a little bit about each one. Number one, love God. There's a lot that could be said about loving God, but I'm going to focus on one aspect of it because I'm trying to do all three all in one sermon. So I'm just going to focus on one piece of love God, and that is I'm going to focus on the concept of worship. What does it mean to worship God? We are to love God in such a way that we adore him and we worship him and value him above all else. And so what I want to do is I want to go to the only verse in the Bible that I'm aware of that defines worship. I only know one verse that like says a thing and then says, now that's what worship is. And it's Romans 12 verse 1. Romans 12, 1 says this, Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. So the Apostle Paul wrote this to the people in Romans, and it's interesting. After he says what he's urging them to do, he says, this is your spiritual worship. Like the thing that I just described, that's worship. Well, what is it? What's the thing that's worship? Well, let me, before I even get into it, notice, he says, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, so I wanted to start off by, before we even say what worship is, I want you to realize, I think it's important to realize this, worship is a reaction to the gospel first. That we don't worship because we go, well, there's a great God and I need to worship him so that he likes me and so that I can earn for his love. No, God shows us mercy first. That Jesus, like God sent his son, Jesus Christ, who came into this world and he died on the cross for our sins and gives us forgiveness. He gives us grace and in reaction to his grace, we love him. Because of his mercy, we worship him. And so this verse says, by the mercies of God. Paul thought there was some connection between God's mercy and then, okay, then this is what I'm urging you to do. Now, what's the thing he urges you to do? The thing that he says is your spiritual worship. Here it is. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's the thing. That's, you want to worship God? You want to love God? That's what you do. You present your body as a living sacrifice. What's that mean? I think that that little phrase, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, is something that probably made a ton of sense in their culture and not so much sense in ours. 
Because in their culture, presenting a body, particularly the body of an animal, like a dead body, and putting it on an altar and offering it in order to appease or to please a deity, that would have been something that was very common in multiple cultures back then. People that were familiar with the Old Testament, like the Hebrew people, as they were following God and worshiping him, according to this first half of the Bible, they would have done that. They would have had sheep and goats and oxen, and there would be times where they would take them to an altar, and in order to please God, or in order to have forgiveness of sins, or in order to do whatever the sacrifice was for, but in order to please God, they would have this animal, and they'd put the dead body of the animal on an altar, and I think sometimes they, maybe they'd burn all of it, sometimes they'd burn part of it, but that was what a sacrifice was. They were, they were used to this, like they understood this idea of giving a body over to God as a sacrifice, and not just them. It, that, that, was, that, that idea is not unique, really, to the Old Testament. There were pagan religions at the time that this was written in the Roman Empire, and they did it too. They also had temples, and there were people that worshipped all sorts of gods, and they would go to the temples of these gods, and they would offer some sort of animal carcass as a sacrifice to please their deities. So Bible people and non-Bible people all understood this idea of presenting a body as a sacrifice to a god. They all got that. Now, you probably don't. You probably didn't do that this week, I'm guessing. Probably none of you have done it in your whole life. But they all knew that stuff. And so into that culture, he says this, you want to worship God, this is what you need to do. Okay? By the mercies of God, I urge you to present your body as a living sacrifice. How do you worship God? You need to offer him you. Not the body of some animal. Present you to him. And just in case anybody would take this like so literally or the wrong way that they're like, what's that mean? Like I get up on an altar and like I kill myself, suicide sort of like set myself on fire. No, no, he's pretty clear here. Present your body as a what? A living sacrifice. Give you to God, not a dead you. Give an alive you to God. That's what it means to worship. That is your spiritual worship. Give God your whole life. And so at Good News Church, we try to be really clear. Worship is not a style of music. Worship is not a special thing that we do on Sunday morning, and then you go and live your regular life, and then a week later you come back and we worship for an hour, and then you go do whatever, non-worship, and then you come back and worship. No, that's not what it is. Worship is you living your life for Him. Not just when we're all gathered together, but when you're on the ball field, and when you're in your classrooms, and when you're at your cubicle, and when you're on vacation, and when you're with your family, and when you're all by yourself, that's the most important thing you can do. So that's love God. Number two, love each other. For love each other, I want to take you to um, Acts chapter two. I want to read you a story that's from the very first church that there ever was. I want to read you just a little bit about this church. Acts chapter two, starting in verse 41. Here's the story. So this is the very first church. This is shortly after, maybe a few months after Jesus um, ascended to heaven. It says, so those who accepted his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. So 3,000 people became a Christian, became Christians on this day. Okay. So the number of Christians is 3,000 plus however many before that day. All right. 3,000 people were added to them. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So who's the they that devoted themselves? The 3,000 people plus whoever was before the 3,000. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles would have been the people who were in charge, like the leaders of the church at the time. To the fellowship. This word fellowship in the original language 
um, is a word that I believe means like sharing with one another, like having my life and your life and we share and we've got each other back to back. You know Greek, am I getting it right? Yeah, so this is like, I'm supporting you, you're supporting me, we're sharing. And so I think the kind of the idea of love each other is sort of baked into the definition of this word, like fellowship. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Then fear came over everyone and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as anyone had a need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple complex and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with a joyful and humble attitude, praising God and having favor with all the people. And every day the Lord added to them those who were being saved. Now there is a lot in there, but I just wanted to point out to you, the early church loved each other. The early church banded together and supported each other. They were committed to Christian teaching. They valued people over possessions. That is really obvious by this text. And they spent time together and they knew each other and they ate meals together and they prayed together. And we want to be a church like that. When we say love each other is our purpose, we want to be a church with qualities like that. That we would be people who band together and support each other and help each other out. That we would be people who value our brothers and sisters more than our stuff. And that we would be people who actually know each other and care about each other and eat together and pray together. We want to love each other like that. And then one other thing I want to say before I move off this point, I want you to notice in verse 46, there's two types of meetings that they had at this point in time, and I just wanted to draw your attention to them. In verse 46, it says, Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple complex and broke bread from house to house. So do you see that's two different types of meetings? So um, they are meeting together first um, in the temple complex. Now, there's 3,000 people. I don't know how many of them met together all at once. Like, I don't know if it was all 3,000 of them or if they were in smaller groups, maybe hundreds of people meeting at a time. But you, the temple complex would have been huge. The temple complex was big. And from other verses in the Bible, it seems as though what was happening at this time is the temple complex was being used as a huge place to meet, and the apostles were doing, like, teaching, like public teaching, sort of large group teaching. I'm imagining that perhaps hundreds of people would all show up at the same time, and the apostles would teach these these 3,000 new people, we don't know much about Christianity. We're in, you know, we, we understand the Messiah, but we don't know everything, and the apostles are teaching. And so I'm thinking that they would meet in the temple complex for like large group teaching, but then there's a second meeting here. They also broke bread from house to house. Well, there's no way that 3,000 people went to those meetings, right? There's no, at least not all at once. There's no way that even hundreds of people were present at these meetings, right? It's, you could only fit however many people could fit in a house, so it looks like what they have is the apostles are doing large group sort of in a public place teaching, and then there's also these smaller groups that are meeting in these houses. Mm -hmm. That sounds familiar. That sounds like a pattern that I've heard somewhere else. And so I just wanted you to notice, if I'm understanding this correctly, we're following this pattern, like it's, you know, as good as we can in, in a different culture thousands of years later, that we have a, a large group teaching. You're in it right now. This is not a temple complex but this is a building that was built that's open to the public. And we have large like, gatherings, a bunch of people all at once for the purposes of teaching. And then also we have groups here, and we encourage you every year to be involved in them, that meet sometimes in the church building, but often from house to house. 
And the reason that we do that is we believe there are certain things that can be accomplished in a service like this that is very difficult to accomplish in a living room. And we think there are certain things that can be accomplished in a living room that is virtually impossible to accomplish here in a room like this. So we want to love each other. We want to meet together and love each other. Number three, love people who don't know God yet. For this one, I want to go to Luke chapter 15. I'm going to read to you one of the most famous parables that Jesus ever told, but I'm going to start with the verses just before the parable so you can see the context, because Jesus didn't just say, I got an idea and make this parable. This parable was actually a reaction to something. So let's start with Luke chapter 15, verse 1. All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. So that's the situation, okay? So who's the him? Yeah, Jesus. You can always guess Jesus. It's almost always the right answer. Okay, so... Um, so Jesus is there, and you've got tax collectors and sinners who are wanting to hang out with him, who are wanting to listen to him, who are wanting to be around him. These are people that nobody liked. These are the bad people, right? Tax collectors, nobody back then liked tax collectors. I mean, I don't know, people love them now even, but, but back then I think it was worse. Okay, so there's all the tax collectors, and then sinners, like, oh, these are the bad kids, right? So there's all these bad people, nobody likes them, and Jesus is hanging out with them, and Jesus is talking to them, and the Pharisees and the scribes, that would be the religious people, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the Pharisees and the scribes were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, this is important to understand. So Jesus is hanging out with bad people, and religious people notice and go, oh, Jesus is hanging out with bad people. And then Jesus tells this story. So this story is a reaction to, oh, Jesus is hanging out with bad people. Now, here's the story. Verse 3, he told them this parable. What man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? And when he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. And coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I found my lost sheep. I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. I think that's a powerful parable, but I think it's even more powerful when you think about who said it, what the occasion was, and who he said it to. Who said it? Jesus said this. What was the occasion? He was hanging out with bad people. Who did he say it to? The religious leaders that were griping about it. When you look at this last verse, when it says, I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Who's the you that he's telling it to? Yeah, the Pharisees. He's saying, I'm telling you that this is the way it works. So my point in bringing up this passage is God cares about lost people. Jesus made that like undeniably clear in this story. God cares about lost people. So we better care about lost people too. And sometimes Christians, without even realizing it, can get so concerned about pleasing the 99 found sheep that they forget to go look for the lost one or even care about the lost one. I can remember at a previous church that I was on staff at, um, I had this conversation with a guy. So not this church, it was in a whole other city. And I had, at the time, I had been preaching on this topic. It might have even been this passage, I can't remember. But I had been spending a lot of time trying to explain to this church, like, we need to care about people who don't know Jesus yet. We need to make strategic decisions to reach people who don't know Jesus yet. 
We need to lay aside some of our preferences in order to make sure that people who aren't comfortable in church would be, be, would, they would be a part of the stuff that we're talking about and we could tell them about Jesus. And so there was a guy, I was talking to a disgruntled member of the church, um, very like, very disgruntled. Um, you can see why that word has the word grunt in the middle of it now that I think about it. Okay, so he's, he was very upset. Um, I think he was. Um, and he was upset because some of his preferences were not happening at the church. Like some of his expectations were not being met. And they were, um, okay, I think at the, if I remember correctly, it's been a while. I think one of his things that he was upset about was the music style at the church. He did not like the music style of the church. Um, and there may have been more to it than that. I and mean, he might have also been unhappy with the dress code or the lack of dress code because sometimes churches will just let you wear anything. Um, and so, so he was upset with something like that. I don't remember exactly, but I just know it wasn't anything theological. It wasn't anything like biblical. It was just preferences that he did not like. And so he was there. And so I walked down the hallway and he was at the end of the hallway. And at this particular church, um, we did not have our own building. So we were renting um, the second floor of a building that was in the downtown area of that town. And because it was on the second floor, there was this window in the hallway that looked out over the town square of the town that we lived in. And so as I walk down the hallway, the guy is standing in front of that window. So I can see his, his back is to the window. So I can see his face, but then over his shoulder, I can see the city that we're trying to reach, right? The people that we want to tell about Jesus. And he's standing in front of the window and he says to me, he goes, and I think he pointed out the window, like behind him. He said, you need to stop caring about those people out there. And you need to start caring about the people you already have here. You keep wanting to do stuff that'll you know, please them and whatever, want them, but you need to please us. You need to do what we want. And then he made a threat. This is, by the way, a paraphrase. I don't remember what he said word for word, but it was something like this. He said, you need to do what we want, and if you don't, we will leave, and we will take our tithe checks with us, and then you'll have to take a pay cut. Are you ready for that? And so this is what I was referring to earlier when I said there is pressure on church leadership to abandon the original mission and focus on attracting and keeping donors. Like that really happens. I wasn't just making that up. I have lived through this. And so I didn't even know what to say to the guy. I think I was in my like early 30s at the time and there was, what a weird conversation. And I think I just answered his question with one word. Like he said, and we'll leave and take our money with us um, and you'll have to take a pay cut. Are you ready for that? And I said, yes. And I think I just walked off. <laughs> but I wanted you to know that. Yes, I will sacrifice for God's mission for his church. And I hope you in this room will sacrifice for God's mission for his church. That's why we're here. Like, that's the point of this. That's why we do an open house. I want to let you know. That's why we're coming together. If you're not into that, I think you're wasting your time on Sunday morning. Amen. Thank you. So one day, let me end with this. One day, Good News Church will be no more. I think it's important for you to know that. Hate to end on a downer, but I'm gonna. <laughs> one day, Good News Church, the organization, will be no more. It will, what will happen to this church is what happens to every single church. It will exist for a while and then not. Just like every, this happens to everything. Nonprofit organizations exist and then one day they close their doors. And businesses start and go for a while and then eventually every business goes out of business. This happens to everything. People live and then they die. Right? Everything has a shelf life. So all churches, all nonprofits, all businesses, all people eventually come to their end. And then the new ones begin. New churches get formed. New businesses get started. New babies get born. Okay? Circle of life. 
So one day, Good News Church, I don't know if it'll be two years from now, I don't know if it'll be 200 years from now, but one day Good News Church will exist no longer. And this is what you need to know. And on that day, the kingdom of God will go on. And that's the thing we live for. That's the thing we seek first, according to Jesus. So that's how I wanted to start off this year. I want you to know this temporary little thing we call Good News Church is just a tool to help us accomplish the mission that actually matters and matters forever. And so step one is knowing the mission of the organization. Love God, love each other, love people who don't know God yet. And then step two is know that the mission of the organization is more important than the organization. You following me? All right, we'll do more next week. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the ability to say this. I even thank you that I get to say it to a room full of people that are going, yeah, we get it, we want that. Because I feel like I've said this to people who went, eh, how do we get rid of him? <laughs> so I thank you. I thank you for this morning and this reaction and these people. And I just pray you'd help us to do it. I pray you'd help us as a church to love you and love each other and love people who don't know God yet. I know that it's not enough for just the leadership to think that's a good idea. Like the church will do not what the leadership says, but really, like when you get down to it, the church will do whatever the church does, like whatever we all decide to do. And so I pray that there would be buy-in, not just the people who are in charge around here, but I pray that all of us, whoever sticks around for however long you give us, I pray there'd be buy-in that we will all say, no, that's what we want. We want to love God and love each other and love people who don't know God yet. That's what we're showing up for. That's what we're putting our effort into. That's what we're living for. And so I just ask that you would grant that to us. I pray that you would let us do it by the power of your spirit. And I pray that you would allow us to do it in reaction to your mercy and your grace and your gospel. So we're not doing it going like, oh, I hope I do this good enough that he loves me. But we'd say, oh, what a merciful God. I will live for him and his people and his lost sheep. So we ask for that humbly. And we thank you for being our God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.